We are getting whiplash trying to find the meandering decision-making of Governor Mike DeWine, and we'll be talking about that on this episode of This Week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I'm here with Laura Johnston, Chris Ranowski, and Jane Cahoon. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Hello. Happy Wednesday. It's not Friday. (laughs) All the days run together. Let's get into Mike DeWine. Less than a week after saying he would count on local officials to fight the coronavirus, why did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine issue a mask order for seven counties on Tuesday? Jane Cahoon, I'm just confused. You know, two weeks ago, he said, we're going to change our approach. We're not going to fight it statewide. We're going to do it county by county. And Laura Hancock did a story showing how dramatically different that was from what he said it would be a disaster to do something like that. Last Thursday, he gets up in front of the the world and says, we're going to count on local officials to do this. We're going to provide them the data they need to do this. And I salute Nan Whaley and the mayors that are putting in mask orders and way to go. So in Cleveland, Frank Jackson puts out a mask order and Armin Budish taking the cue from the governor starts working on a countywide mask order. And the governor comes out yesterday and issues a mask order in seven counties. I don't get it. Chris, do you know how many times you've asked me to get into Mike DeWine's head? <laughs> and I have not been successful up to this point, and nor do I expect to be successful today. You know, the way he explained it was that, you know, people are ready for this now. His, his spokesman characterized it as something that was complementary to what the local authorities are doing, not uh, not usurping them. And I'm right, throwing but, the yellow flag because that's just completely bogus. He didn't even call Cuyahoga County to say, hey, I'm doing this. Yep. I, I thought last week that we might have hit on why he had decided to let the locals do it, because every time he does something, he ends up in court. And by letting the locals do it, you have to have a thousand battlefronts instead of one. I, I, I cannot come up with. I, I'm really strained, but I cannot come up with an explanation for this. I'm counting on you to do that, Jane Cahoon. All right, here's my here's my theory. That he he knows it's the right thing to do to get people to wear masks, but he can't bring himself to do a statewide order. He's under so much pressure from lawmakers and others. For instance, we have the Speaker of the House, Larry Householder, who we know said, you know, doesn't own a mask. He his campaign paid to put out a Facebook post that he made where he's sitting in a restaurant without a mask, signing that bill that they passed recently that um, decriminalizes violations of public health orders. And it, and he talks about, you know, our freedoms are more important and, uh, you know, all this. So he's got that. And he also says he continues to talk to Amy Acton every day. So I think he's got you know, I wish we could talk it, to Amy Acton every I know, day. I'd feel a lot better about life. <laughs> so my theory is he's he's trying to do something, but he knows he's going to get big backlash if he tries to do it statewide. And so we end up with this thing in between here where he's picking these seven counties that have the, the biggest you know risks and, and biggest upticks. And, and that's right. what he decided to do. So let's let's take it to the next step. Almost immediately, law enforcement down in Cincinnati and Hamilton County said, we're not enforcing that. And while it would be really easy to say, what's wrong with you guys? You know, the mask wearing is a public health good. You should do it. Do we really want our police and sheriffs 
to prioritize enforcing mask wearing? I mean, is it instead of working with local officials and coming up with a way of local enforcement, he issues an edict, DeWine issues this edict statewide and says, I'm going to count on local authorities to enforce it. And right away, you have local authorities in one place saying, yeah, we're not doing that. So what is the effectiveness of an order? And really, I guess the bigger question is, is a mask order enforceable in any way, shape or form anywhere? I mean, isn't that the problem with a mask mandate from the beginning is that enforcement of it is pretty much not possible? Well, you're right. But it's just like the stay at home order. Do you think everybody stayed at home under the stay at home order? No, but it but it was there. You know, I think he somewhat acknowledged this yesterday during his briefing when he said, you know, look, we're not looking to arrest people or cite people or fine people. You know, that's not the idea here. The idea is that we know this is important and we want to reinforce the importance of it. So I don't think he's got an expectation that we're going to have cops, you know, coming down on people for not wearing masks. I think he just thinks there's some weight to having an official order on this. Well, and if you do count on police to do it, I would not expect it to be racially balanced enforcement based on all that we've been talking about. Look, here's here's what I wish would happen. I, I When he changed his philosophy from statewide to county by county, he didn't address the fact that this is a sea change for me. I, I know I've said in the past, this is a bad idea. Here's why I've changed my mind. And what he didn't say yesterday was, I know last Thursday I said (laughs) I was going to count on local officials to do this. And here's why in five days I've changed my mind and I think I should do this. He just does it. And it's in it and it's confusing. And, you know, I feel bad for Armin Budish. I mean, he and the county council geared up to do this. They got a plan in place. They were ready to introduce it. And just about the same time as they were about (laughs) to, he announces it. And that's the, really the not closest, fa- the closest he came was to say when somebody asked him about it, we're in a much more dangerous time and we're at a point in time when Ohioans are looking at Texas and Florida and they're saying we don't want to go there. You know, we're since going last to Thursday? It's, it's a more dangerous time since last Thursday. <laughs> yeah, what changed what changed in five days that wasn't yeah. already a problem? You know, it's it's Florida and Texas have been a disaster for weeks and and let's not forget Arizona but you know I oh god I can't even begin to wrap my head around this it's so weird well neither can I so don't beat me up about this <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I'm just trying to explain you're the state house editor Jane yeah. we expect you to have all the answers you're listening to this week in the CLE Have young people in Ohio become the biggest group to be infected by the coronavirus? At the start of this, this was a virus that attacked people 50 and older. And the older you were, the more vulnerable you were. And the age groups that had the the highest percentage of cases were the older ones. Now, it seems like that's changed, Laura Johnston. What's going on? Yeah, obviously, older groups are still more vulnerable, but they are no longer the biggest chunk of the infections. That's 20-somethings. So they make up about 26% of Ohio's total. In addition, we're talking about 18.5% of new cases are in their 30s, and about 12.3% of cases are kids 18, or sorry, 19 and younger. So that means that more than half of new cases are people under 40. Some, none of us on this podcast are in that um, uh, age group anymore. But 
that, I mean, compare that to the beginning when you were right, that people ages 40 or younger was just 29%. So are the bars packed with people under 40? I, I, you know, I haven't been in a bar because I'm, I'm, I'm doing I'm what I'm supposed to do. And, but, but I, I just, this is a radical, radical turnaround to, to have the numbers skyrocketing like that. So, so they must be out there and, and we're, you know, we're not seeing it, but are, are the bars filled with, with people? I Is mean, that if you, what's you see the pictures of them. Yeah. I mean, that's what it looks like. And, and it's not just bars. You I mean like this is summer, so everybody's outside, but they are getting together. And I know, you know, there's talk above around town where I live about like high school kids that, that have it and they've been hanging out. You hear horror stories about COVID parties, like the chicken pox parties that we talked, you know, months ago about why that's not a good idea, but they just have this um, kind of mentality of like, let's, let's just get it over with. And John Houston actually kind of was proselytizing to these folks yesterday saying, you might not care about you, but you need to care about older people that you might give it to. And he was trying to start this hashtag, like, I want it season. And really, has that argument ever worked with, I, I mean, remember <laughs> when you were 20, would that argument have worked with you when you were 20? Not a chance. I mean, that's just, you could say that till you're blue in the face, but when you're 20, you're thinking about being 20. Right. Listen, you think you're invincible. Sorry, this Chris. is Chris Warnowski. The other thing that you have to think about is like, who is working at these bars? Like, who are the employees? And you, you look at a lot of bars that are, are staffed by people who are in their early 20s, late 20s, early 30s. And, you know, who's working at your restaurant? Who's who's waiting on you? Who's delivering your food? You know, it's it, we, we can't forget that, you know, a lot of people in that age range are also kind of at the front lines of making sure you can get your bloom and onion. And for some context, I mean, I literally did just move out of my building because I was worried about being surrounded by like 20 somethings who were not wearing masks, not wearing masks in elevators specifically, despite the increased consistent demands of the building management. So, you know, there is the bulletproof sense of this, but part of that, I think, is is a, a failure of the messaging on this that, you know, it, it, just, it, we, we, we created a, this sort of notion that this was something that hurt people in congregate settings, old people, nursing homes, jails, whatever. And, 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 and I don't know that they did an effective enough job of, of stressing that this is going to hurt people. And like, again, I don't know how much more you could say to the public about how dangerous this is. And, and at some point it does become a, a willful rejection of reality when you decide to ignore it. Although so, you do have the president. There? Yeah, go ahead, Jane. Go ahead. Uh, you know, people are pointing to some people like our president are pointing to, oh, the death rate is is down and, you know, perhaps attributable to, you know, more young people who recover from it. But as as has been said, you know, they're going to spread it to the older, vulnerable people who who are going to die. So that that's a dangerous thing to just look at the, the death rate. And, and the death rate statistics are a little skewed. I was reading yesterday that part of the reason that the death statistics are down is because we're catching the cases earlier. So people are, there's a longer period of time between 
understanding that someone has it and them dying. So there's also the the treatment for the most sick with the steroid that kind of stops that immune system storm. So they're they're doing a better job of preventing people from dying. But that doesn't mean they don't get really sick and have long term uh, health effects as a result. The attitude shouldn't be like, I'm going to survive this. Your attitude should be, I don't ever want to get this. And, yeah. and, I, and I think when you say that, that people aren't dying from it, it really undercuts how devastating this is to your health and, and how there are so many unknowns about what the long-term effects of this are going to be on your body for the rest of your life. You know, if you live 50 years, you know, your lungs may be severely diminished. You may... Right. And, and and you don't want that. Like, I, I don't think anybody, anybody should be out there with the attitude that they're strong enough to, to overcome this and live a, a perfectly healthy life because that is it. We're seeing that that is just not the case. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Does Cleveland police chief Calvin Williams tell lies? This <laughs> Cleveland scene came out last week with an article that said, Calvin Williams is lying. Something that I think is a risky thing to say, but, But this all comes down to Calvin Williams told the editorial board of Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer a few days after the May 30th riot that protesters had gotten into, breached the Justice Center with the intention of setting fires and releasing people from the jail. He said it flat out. We came back and asked more questions about it. There was no mistaking it. Corey Schaefer, our reporter, did some work to show, cast serious doubts on this, looking at videos. And then the sheriff came out, and the sheriff who was in charge of the Justice Center came out and said, nobody got in. They tried. We kept them out. So it raises the question, did Calvin Williams tell a lie? Was he misinformed? What happened here? It's becoming more and more clear that nobody did breach the Justice Center, Chris Warnowski. So what's the answer here? Was it a lie? Was he misinformed? How did this happen? I mean, are we really going to define, like, I don't know, like it's, it's, we still don't know how he got the information that, that led him to say this. So I think there's still like a a tiny gap in, in how he reached the conclusion and said that to somebody. I would say that's a big gap, but okay. (laughs) Um, well, but I mean, what I'm saying is, is the gap is narrowing. Like it's, 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 it's getting harder for him to sort of, I mean, you can't. But he addressed it yesterday. What did he, he say? He addressed it yesterday and he basically said he didn't lie and that the department will be releasing a full report about what happened in the coming weeks. So, but, he's, but he didn't, he didn't stand by the statement. He said that he um, based yeah, he it. Had the information that he had at the time. So. so So then this comes down to a couple of different scenarios, right? There's a possibility that somebody he trusts told him the building was breached. That's a little hard to believe because it apparently was not breached. You know, was he operating on gossip? Did he get, did he hear rumor that, hey, the place was breached and then drop that on us at the editorial board? I, Maybe. I, mean, I, I just, you know, it's increasingly sounding like that, but I mean, you're the, you're the police chief, you're the head of the department. Like you, you know, if, if somebody says that to you and then you turn around and, and tell a, a, a room full of people who work at a news organization that as if it's fact without really checking into it, that that's, that's a serious judgment lapse. And I, and, and so, you know, I think time will tell whether, you know, the exact reason why he, he, took this information where he got it from and handed it to us. But, but I think, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if, 
it's it's that old adage, you know, if your mom tells you you love her or that that she loves you, uh, confirm it. You know, he didn't confirm anything, and so yeah, it's a question of how irresponsible he was. What what did he base? And look, and Corey Schaefer has explained this better than anybody. It's important because they use statements like that to justify firing all that less lethal weaponry on unarmed citizens who were protesting. So so it matters. You know, they came out within days and said, you know, we had to do what we were doing. You have no idea what it was like down there. They breached the Justice Center. So, of course, we had to use force. Well, if they didn't breach the Justice Center and if they didn't throw rocks like was originally said, then maybe the police reaction to this is an overreaction. And that's what this is really about, right? Right. And, you know, but this speaks to a larger issue in law enforcement. You know, if if there weren't 100 people, reporters and legal observers down there that day, you know, what account of this would we have received from the police department? You know, and again, it wouldn't happen if all those people weren't there. But, 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 it, but it's, you know, we, we, we have this sort of issue where people in communities are saying, believe what we say about police. And, and, and this is an example of that. This is, this is, this is a great example of, of why and how police accounts of things either are, are intentionally dishonest to, you know, misleading at, at, at best. Well, it's to justify their actions. I am disappointed that when he finally addressed this, because we've been pounding on him for almost a week, that he didn't address it. He just said, I didn't tell a lie. I don't tell lies. It was the best information I had. He knows what happened. He should have explained it right then and there, not left us to wait for some report they're going to put out later. But we'll wait for that report. Yeah, and let's, and, and, and to be fair, he th- this press conference that they had yesterday was not to address this. We had, yeah, but it doesn't matter. He, he, he had not right. stood what I'm saying is reporters. That, like, they have not answered a single question about this, really. Right. And, and they had not made him available to us to talk about this. So, so whatever you, the purpose of the press conference is, this was the first chance reporters had to say, hey, what gives? He had to know that question was coming. They should have answered it. You know, yeah. and and if he doesn't answer it with us, that's a city council. City council should make him answer it. But of course, we know Matt Zone is conflicted because <laughs> his son is a police officer who was at the scene, and he won't give up his seat as the chairman of the public safety committee. There's no oversight going on. It's this week in the CLE, which businesses and other organizations receive loans under the federal Paycheck Protection Program, which was created to help during the coronavirus? We got most of these, right, Jane Cahoon? There's still a bunch that got less than 150000 that we don't know. But we learned a lot about the businesses in Ohio that got money through this. What is the, what is the general takeaway? So actually, we did not get most of them because the vast, vast majority of these loans were for less than 150000 So there's still a ton of loans out there that for which the government has not released um, the information about who, who got them. That being said, there are like tens of thousands of them in Ohio that are at least 150,000. And we happen to have a searchable database if you want to look for them that Rich Exner put together. And you can find that at cleveland.com slash data central. But anyway, to, to get to your question, you know, there are a ton of different businesses, manufacturers, even nonprofits. And one of them happens to be a company partly owned by Governor Mike DeWine, 
It's called the DeWine Seeds Silver Dollar Baseball, and they own a minor league baseball team in North Carolina called the Asheville Taurus. And the governor's son, Brian, is president of that company. They got $189,500. And um, DeWine said his son, you know, that, that this business was adversely affected by the coronavirus pandemic, just like a lot of other small businesses. And I guess they, um, the governor has a, I think a 32% stake in that and, but doesn't play any management role. So, so there's that one. Um, another organization that got money is the Ohio Democratic Party. Their state candidate fund got $333,867. And it, we don't know exactly how many jobs that helped them retain, but they said, okay, the purpose of the PPP is to help organizations cover payroll and benefits, and that's exactly what we used it for. The, Will uh, there be general accounting at some point as to how many jobs were protected because of this? Will anybody do an audit? I don't know. I mean, there's already suggestions that like the president's friends benefited from this. I mean, it's, and with the information being already so hard to come by, I don't have a lot of faith um, in that, but anyway. No, it's interesting. Check out the database. You can search it by name, by zip code, all sorts of parameters. It's this week in the CLE. How many people did the U.S. Coast Guard save in the Great Lakes during the July 4th weekend? Love talking about the Great Lakes, right, Laura Johnston? (laughs) Always. So um, 45 people were saved and about another 250 people assisted. And this weekend that they say was the biggest in about five years, at least, the biggest Independence Day weekend. And you always have to remember, well, July 4th isn't always on a weekend. So this having it on on Saturday made for a long weekend. But um, they did about 100 search and rescue missions. And unfortunately, two people did drown. They're at at least 21 drownings in the Great Lakes this year. Six of those are in Lake Erie. What do they attribute this to? Why are people seemingly being more stupid this year? Or is it just that if I can't do a lot of the recreation I've done in the past, being out on the lake is completely safe. So a lot of people are going out on the lake. I think that's the latter. I mean, I did a story earlier this year about how boat sales are just out of control. I've heard that people are trying to buy boats and they can't. Um, paddle boards are, are hard to find because so many people have bought them. Uh, so our kayaks, people are looking for ways to entertain themselves and get outside and, you know, social distance. And so I think there are more people out and there might be more people that honestly don't know what they're doing. They're not experienced. This is their first time. And I mean, this, remember, this was a long weekend, beautiful, hot, sunny weather, at least here, probably around a lot of the Great Lakes. The water is higher than it normally is. We didn't break a record in June, but we're still uh, more than two feet up above average. So uh, p- maybe people didn't see rocks. I know that uh, there are a couple spots on, you know, near Cleveland where you can't see the underground barrier, <laughs> underwater barriers now because the water level is so high. So if you're not experienced, you could run aground very easily. So there are a whole lot of dangers out there. That's why the Coast Guard put out a release. They said, you know, wear your life jacket, file a float plan, let someone know you're going and carry a radio so that you can contact us if you need help. They published a picture of a boat that was sinking. Was that one that hit rocks? Is that what they did? They just put a hole in their hull? It it definitely was capsizing. That was in Michigan from our, and our sister site, MLive had that too. So, um, but yeah, they got, they got out there and, and 
did that rescue. So uh, they were busy, busy. And you know, the the headquarters for the entire Great Lakes uh, rescue missions, those are in Cleveland. So always good to know. Yeah, those numbers were pretty staggering. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Does the Cleveland Police Division have enough detectives to solve all of the homicides that are happening? This has been a criticism for years, Chris, that Chris Warnowski, that they don't have the staffing they need to do the job right. We have a new report. What does it say? Right. So this is the second report like this that we've received in about four years. And experts from the uh, U.S. Department of Justice's National Public Safety Partnership arm uh, said that Cleveland needs at least 38 homicide detectives to investigate the increasing number of homicides in the city properly. Uh, the department currently has about 19 full-time detectives and three other detectives working with the unit on a temporary basis. So we have seen a, you know, an incremental increase in deadly violence. But one of the issues that was raised um, not only by the previous report, um, which was done by a, like a law enforcement think tank, um, but the mayor has also come out and, and sort of said that the, the solve rate for homicides is pretty abysmal. Um, they've managed to address that problem by putting some, like pulling detectives from other units into this, but, um, but, but really it's a, it's a problem that continues to persist. How do you reconcile that with the whole movement to defund the police? I mean, this is saying they need not double, but almost double their staff at the same time across the country. There are arguments that police departments have too much of a staff and are overfunded. Well, I think this is, I, I don't think a lot of people are going to disagree with the notion that we need to investigate homicides. This is actually, you know, <laughs> no, I, no, think, I guess not. I, I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to put police resources into something, this is actually one of the places where it probably needs to be. You know, we talk about, when you talk about the defund police movement, um, you know, their issue is more along the lines of why are police responding to you know, mental health mental crises health, and, you know, and then there's some, some critical examinations of whether there are better ways to send, you know, I mean, police spend a lot of time dealing with domestic disputes and, you know, there are, there are alternatives to that too. This is, this is a, a function of police that actually, you know, serves a, a very important purpose. And we should point and, out too, that the same criticism has repeatedly been made of their sex crimes unit. It's not in this latest one, but they don't have enough sex crimes detectives either. Right. And so, you know, what do you, you know, what is your department's budget spent on? And, and you want to, you know, we're going to look at this, I think in the future, but there's, you know, I think there's, you know, a lot of officer, a lot of patrolling going on. And, and so you get into this sort of philosophical idea of policing of, is it important to have guys in cars out patrolling neighborhoods to have visibility? And, 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 and so, you know, it's, you know, it'll be interesting to see whether, you know, they adopt these these recommendations because no, no, they never have, though. I mean, they've well, been criticized and, for this for years. And, and in this specific case, they're they're not suggesting that they hire more people, which is interesting. And yeah. and frankly, you know, I mean, with the budget probably taking a hit from coronavirus and and the fact that, a, you know, they've they've had to spend more money on actually modernizing and training their officers better there really isn't money available to hire more people. So this, this would, this would have to be a resource shift. And, and so, you know, we'll see if the will that is there to do it. I just, I don't, I, I doubt there is. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. 
What's Dennis Kucinich up to these days, and might he actually run for mayor again? Actually, I've heard in some polling he's one of the front runners if he runs for mayor, which is shocking, but it's Dennis. So, Jane Cahoon, what's he up to? Well, it's always interesting to have a conversation with Dennis Kucinich. He uh, talked to our Sabrina Eaton the other day and told her he's he's been hunkered down in Cleveland with his wife, and he's working to finish his 600-page book about his fight to save the city's municipal electric system, which which we know he was right about. He likes to remind us of that. And he was also reminding us how right he was about this decision that came down the other day about the Dakota access pipeline, about a federal court shut it down. And he said he was absolutely right about that. He predicted that decision. He's very happy about it. He was one of the protesters against it. And um, so he said that really affirms due process rights in the tribal communities. And um, go ahead. I love what he said about running for mayor. Yes, of course, we had to ask him that. And, you know, he's he loves being coy. So he said, I have read some speculation in The Plain Dealer about that, and I'm not going to interfere with that speculation. (laughs) (laughs) I won't interfere with it either. I think he has his eyes on running. Yeah, Uh, you know, he was doing the same thing. Remember back in 2018 when there there was speculation about him running for governor, and he he had the same types of answers there. And and, uh, as we know, he jumped into that race. He didn't win the nomination, but he was all in. Yeah, I I just I think he's he would have a hard time. I think a lot of forces would line up against him, and I think there's a younger generation that sees openings with uh, Frank Jackson reaching the end of his fourth term. It's this week in the CLE. Right, good conversation, everybody. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to the audience for listening. We will return with another episode tomorrow. 